How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion Pod Talk here, man. And let me tell y'all, before we get started, y'all always know like tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on this Illusiano Uma de Amora. Let me tell you, this stick here is truly for the cigar lovers. Now, before I tell y'all what I'm thinking about this thing here, I got to tell y'all what these folks say. You know, these folks been smoking these things a lot longer than I have. But I'm going to tell you, I really enjoyed this stick here. Now, what these folks say, they say a truly unique blend. Uma de Amora uses a lingor, which is typically the tobacco that kicks up blends in the body and strength. Instead, expert blending of Seco and Viso primers, the tobacco plant create a perfectly balanced, wonderfully complex full body experience from start to finish. And that is sure enough true. A blend that connoisseurs would flock towards. Uma de Amora boosts ample refined notes that entertain the senses all the way through. To add to the Fuma de Aroma stellar reputation, it received the number three cigar of the year in honors in 2014. Now, man, I'm telling you, I really, really enjoyed this stick here. Now, they also say Fuma Illusionado Fuma de Amora received a well-deserved 95 rating note. Now, I finally figured out what notes was, how they rate these things today from my fellas up at the cigar spot. But the end is like here, they say the result is a truly delicious cigar with balance and style, brimming with a rich, nutty cashew taste, hints of nut sweetness and touches of bacon soda. Man, this was a truly good stick. Again, I got an education because I asked the fellas at the cigar spot when I went to buy today. How do these folks be getting these ratings, like these 95 ratings and 90 ratings? So they kind of explained to me that, you know, you got these group of guys, I think like three guys, three or four guys, right? And they sit down and they smoke about three of these cigars each. And then, you know, they go through this balance thing. I don't know. But these guys who really, you know, connoisseurs of cigars, you know, they smoke each. And they may put the cigar down for a year or two and maybe come, they, they rate it and then they come back maybe a year or two and rate again. I don't know. Y'all can see I'm still kind of confused on how this rating thing go. And I asked the fellas, you know, about these nuts and cashews. Now, fellas, the fellas say that they can taste earthy in it because I wonder what is earth? What do earth taste like? And they say, well, earth tastes like dirt. Now, I ain't never taste no dirt, but they say dirt has a smell. And usually your smell and your taste generally your palate goes the same. So I don't know about all that. You know, and one guy was saying, you know, you can taste, he can taste cashews and like you can taste the leather and all that kind of stuff. Only thing I got to say is I'm just not good yet. I'm not that good yet, but I do can tell when it's a good, smooth, creamy cigar because that creamy has that smooth note in it to me. Now, all this other stuff that they say they can taste, like I say, I'm still a rookie in this thing. I can't dispute it or deny it at this time. But all I got to say is, man, I was out there on my front, aired out there tonight, and I was smoking on this thing, man. And it's a little smaller stick. This is a smaller stick. And a good price point, too. Price point is like $6. But it is a good stick. It, it still took me probably about an hour to smoke. I smoked a little and I set it down. I had a fella came by. You know, he walked his dog and he seen me out there on the gear and he stopped by and struck a little conversation. We started talking about politics and all kind of other stuff. And uh, so I was just, you know, I was just easing on that. I wasn't smoking like I normally smoke it. But it was so good. I'm telling you, I didn't want to put it down. Put it down. Kind of hate it when that old boy stopped by and started talking to me because this cigar here was tasting good. So I got to tell you, folks, man, if you want a good stick, you know, good a good hour smoke or something like that, man, you you got to try this Illusiana Fuma de Amora. Look at my website and you got a picture of it and you can see what it looked like. Really good stick. I really enjoyed it. And I think everything from this little Illusiana line is pretty good. Matter of fact, I'm going to do an upcoming pie talk on it. Because I got a little bit more education, you know, last night on, you know, how cigars are made and, you know, how these blends are put together. And the gentleman from Illusiana, he did a really good job explaining it. And I, so I'm going to do it on probably the next pod talk. So it might not be a pod talk for everybody, you know, mostly cigar lovers. It's give you a pretty good idea of how these things are put together. And this was one of his lines. It's Illusiana Fuma de Amoro was one of his lines, one of his, one of his first cigar lines, and I really enjoyed it. I'm about to try some of the other cigars also that this gentleman made, because he was real, 
He was real educational. He really did a great job explaining things to, you know, from the process of how they, you know, how they how they think of this thing, you know, from the leaves that they pick, some of the feelings, all this stuff. I did an excellent job. So I'm going to do that probably on the next pod talk here. But tonight, after talking with that old boy on my front porch, you know, I had to, I was thinking about a lot of things. And, and the, this gentleman came to mind, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Sowell. You know, he's a black economist. A lot of folks don't know in the black community about Thomas Sowell. But let me tell you something. This is a man that is really education, educational, and he really does his research. I love all his books. Matter of fact, probably around about 2007 is actually when I picked up one of his first audio books. I pretty much got every audio book he made. Don't have much time to sit there and read. And when I come back from Delaware, when I was coming from Delaware to Florida down here, I had his pa had his audio books on. It was really educational. And one book particular that really stood out to me that kind of changed my perspective or my thinking on a lot of things was his book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Let me tell you something. This is an excellent book. You know, I, I recommend, you know, a lot of black folks out there, I recommend y'all get this book. Y'all go on, you know, article or somewhere like that. And y'all pick this audio book up if you want the hard copy. You know, you can get it in Kindle or whatever you, you know, whatever your format you want, though. But this is a real good book. And I suspect not just black folks out there, but some of you white folks and everybody else out there, y'all need to pick this book up. Black Rednecks and White Liberals really changed my perspective on a lot of things my way of thinking. Because I like to get information from people who do their research, their homework. And Thomas Sowell, man, this gentleman, he does his research and his homework. Now, a lot of, a lot of folks, you know, don't agree with him. You know, and uh, that's, you know, that's just like anything. Everybody, you know, got their opinion. But when you talk about opinion, you got to, you know, say you don't like somebody because of the opinion. You got to know facts about why you don't like that person. But see, this gentleman here, Mr. Thomas Sowell, he's got facts. He does his research and his homework. He got a whole heap of books, whole heap of books out there. But man, y'all need to check this gentleman out. Now, I know Obama didn't like us. He was one of the person that when we was dealing with this 2008 crisis, I was the one that, why don't President Obama go to somebody like Thomas Sowell and ask for some advice? Because here's a man that's been there. He's been there and fought the battles. You know, he's been there. He's done the research. The research. He knows what works and don't. what probably won't work. And I'll be wondering why. Why don't these people go get advice for somebody like Thomas Sowell? You know, he had, you know he wasn't a big fan of Obama at all. And, you know, that's just the way it was. But. Tonight, I just thought about it. You know, it's about time for me to do a little talk on Thomas Sowell, especially, like I say, his book that influenced me, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Then we're also going to take a look at black conservatism in the United States. You see, there's a whole heap of us black conservatives out there. I know, you know, I got I lean a little a lot to a, uh, a conservative viewpoint. I think if I had to rate myself, I probably would be a liberal minded, even though I don't agree with everything the liberals say. So, but, you know, that's not here or there. I don't really want to get into my political views, but a lot of, you know, Thomas Sowell helped shape a lot of my views that I have today. Because back then, you know, when I had views, I had views on what I seen and what was going on around me. Didn't really have much information. I was just going by, you know, people that I, you know, people that I trust, that I hear conversations with, then I do a little research here and there. But Thomas Sowell really, 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 Got me to thinking about a whole lot of things. So without a whole lot of talk now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shed my little trap here. And I'm going to, you know, think about this in Louisiana. Former deal, former deal that I was smoking on today. Well, y'all take a listen to this. And I'm going to come back on the flip side and talk to y'all a little bit. So probably won't be too long because it's getting late in the night. And I think Mr. Thomas will do a very good job. And uh, I'll catch up with y'all on the flip side. All right? All right now. Let's take a look at Mr. Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell, born June 30, 1930, is an American economist and social theorist who is currently a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Sowell was born in North Carolina but grew up in Harlem, New York. He dropped out of Stuyvesant High School and served in the United States Marine Corps during the Korean War. He received a bachelor's degree, graduating magna cum laude from Harvard University in 1958 and a master's degree from Columbia University in 1959. In 1968, he earned his doctorate in economics from the University of Chicago. Sowell has served on the faculties of several universities, 
including Cornell University and University of California, Los Angeles. He has also worked for think tanks such as the Urban Institute. Since 1980, he has worked at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He writes from a libertarian conservative perspective. Saul has written more than 30 books, a number of which have been reprinted in revised editions, and his work has been widely anthologized. He is a National Humanities Medal recipient for Innovative Scholarship which incorporated history, economics, and political science. Biography Early Life Saul was born in Gastonia, North Carolina, near the state line with South Carolina. His father died shortly before he was born, leaving behind Saul's mother, a housemaid, who already had four children. A great aunt and her two grown daughters adopted Saul and raised him. In his autobiography, A Personal Odyssey, Saul wrote that his childhood encounters with white people were so limited that he did not know that blonde was a hair color. When Saul was nine, his family moved from Charlotte, North Carolina to Harlem, New York City for greater opportunities as part of the great migration of African Americans from the American South to the North. He qualified for Stuyvesant High School, a prestigious academic high school in New York City, he was the first in his family to study beyond the sixth grade. However, he was forced to drop out at age 17 because of financial difficulties and problems in his home. Saul held a number of positions, including one at a machine shop and another as a delivery man for Western Union for he tried out for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1948. He was drafted into the military in 1951, during the Korean War, and was assigned to the United States Marine Corps. Because of his experience in photography, Saul became a Marine Corps photographer. Higher Education and Early Career After his discharge, Saul worked a civil service job in Washington, D.C., and attended night classes at Howard University, a historically black college. His high scores on the college board exams and recommendations by two professors helped him gain admission to Harvard University, where he graduated magna cum laude in 1958 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. He earned a master's degree from Columbia University the following year. Saul has said that he was a Marxist during the decade of my 20s, Accordingly, one of his earliest professional publications was a sympathetic examination of Marxist thought versus Marxist-Leninist practice. However, his experience working as a federal government intern during the summer of 1960 caused him to reject Marxian economics in favor of free market economic theory. During his work, Saul discovered an association between the rise of mandated minimum wages for workers in the sugar industry of Puerto Rico and the rise of unemployment in that industry. Studying the patterns led Saul to theorize that the government employees who administered the minimum wage law cared more about their own jobs than the plight of the poor. Saul received a Doctor of Philosophy degree in economics from the University of Chicago in 1968. His dissertation was titled Say's Law and the General Glut Controversy. Saul had initially chosen Columbia University to study under George Stigler, who would later receive the Nobel Prize in Economics. When he learned that Stigler had moved to the University of Chicago, he followed him there. Career from 1965 to 1969, Saul was an assistant professor of economics at Cornell University. Writing 30 years later about the 1969 takeover by black Cornell students of Willard Strait Hall, Saul characterized the students as hoodlums with serious academic problems who were admitted under lower academic standards, and noted it so happens that the pervasive racism that black students supposedly encountered at every turn on campus and in town W.S. not apparent to me during the four years that I taught at Cornell and lived in Ithaca. Saul has taught economics at Howard University, Rutgers, Cornell, Brandeis University, Amherst College, and the University of California, Los Angeles. Since 1980, he has been a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he holds a fellowship named after Rose and Milton Friedman, his mentor. In addition, Saul appeared several times on William F. Buckley Jr.'s show Firing Line, during which he discussed the economics of race and privatization. In 1987, Saul testified in favor of Federal Appeals Court Judge Robert Bork during the hearings for Bork's nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. In his testimony, Saul said that Bork was the most highly qualified nominee of this generation and that what he viewed as judicial activism, a concept that Bork opposed as a self-described originalist and textualist, has not been beneficial to minorities. In a review of Saul's 1987 book, A Conflict of Visions, Larry D. Natchman in Commentary magazine described Saul as a leading representative of the Chicago School of Economics. Personal life. Previously married to Alma Jean Parr from 1964 to 1975, Saul married Mary Ash in 1981. He has two children, John and Lorraine. In 2007, 
Saul commented that modern television talk shows did not match the quality of David Susskind's Open End or the University of Chicago Roundtable and that Meet the Press moderated by Tim Russert was unlike the shows moderated by Lawrence Spivak or Bill Monroe. Saul is also known for his disdain of self-promotion. Writings and Thought Saul is a syndicated columnist whose work was distributed by Creators Syndicate. Themes of Saul's writing range from social policy on race, ethnic groups, education, and decision-making, to classical and Marxian economics, to the problems of children perceived as having disabilities. Saul had a nationally syndicated column distributed by Creators Syndicate that was published in Forbes magazine, National Review, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Times, The New York Post, and other major newspapers, as well as online on websites such as Eel Clear Politics, Town Hall, World Net Daily, and the Jewish World Review. Saul comments on current issues, which include liberal media bias, judicial activism, while defending originalism, intact dilation and extraction, commonly known as, and described in U.S. federal law as, partial birth abortion, minimum wage, universal health care, the tension between government policies, programs, and protections and familial autonomy, affirmative action, government bureaucracy, gun control, militancy in U.S. foreign policy, the war on drugs, and multiculturalism. On December 27, 2016, Saul announced the end of his syndicated column, writing that, at age 86, the question is not why I am quitting, but why I kept at it so long, and cited a desire to focus on his photography hobby. Economic and Political Ideology While often described as a black conservative, he prefers not to be labeled, having stated, I prefer not to have labels, but I suspect that libertarian would suit me better than many others, although I disagree with the libertarian movement on a number of things. Saul primarily writes on economic subjects, generally advocating a free market approach to capitalism. Saul opposes the Federal Reserve, arguing that it has been unsuccessful in preventing economic depressions and limiting inflation. Saul described his serious study of Karl Marx in his autobiography, he opposes Marxism, providing a critique in his book Marxism, Philosophy and Economics, 1985. Saul has also written a trilogy of books on ideologies and political positions, including A Conflict of Visions, in which he speaks on the origins of political strife, The Vision of the Anointed, in which he compares the conservative-slash-libertarian and liberal-slash-progressive worldviews, and The Quest for Cosmic Justice, in which, as in many of his other writings, he outlines his thesis of the need for intellectuals, politicians, and leaders to fix and perfect the world in utopian, and ultimately he posits disastrous fashions. Separate from the trilogy, but also in discussion of the subject, he wrote Intellectuals and Society, building on his earlier work, in which he discusses what he argues to be the blind hubris and follies of intellectuals in a variety of areas. His book Knowledge and Decisions, a winner of the 1980 Law and Economics Center Prize, was heralded as a landmark work, selected for this prize because of its cogent contribution to our understanding of the differences between the market process and the process of government. In announcing the award, the center acclaimed Sowell, whose contribution to our understanding of the process of regulation alone would make the book important, but in re-emphasizing the diversity and efficiency that the market makes possible, his work goes deeper and becomes even more significant. Friedrich Hayek wrote, In a wholly original manner Sowell succeeds in translating abstract and theoretical argument into highly concrete and realistic discussion of the central problems of contemporary economic policy. Sowell also favors decriminalization of all drugs, and occasionally writes on the subject of gun control, for example. One can cherry-pick the factual studies, or cite some studies that have subsequently been discredited, but the great bulk of the studies show that gun control laws do not in fact control guns. On net balance, they do not save lives, but cost lives. Race and Ethnicity In several of his works, Sowell challenges the notion that black progress is due to progressive government programs or policies, including in the Economics and Politics of Race, 1983, Ethnic America, 1981, Affirmative Action Around the World, 2004, and other books. He claims that many problems identified with blacks in modern society are not unique, neither in terms of American ethnic groups, nor in terms of a rural proletariat struggling with disruption as it became urbanized, as discussed in his Black Rednecks and White Liberals, 2005. Sowell, also writes on racial topics, typically critical of affirmative action and race-based quotas 42-43 he takes strong issue with the notion of government as a helper or savior of minorities, arguing that the historical record shows quite the opposite. In affirmative action around the world, Sowell holds that affirmative action covers most of the American population, particularly women, and has long since ceased to favor blacks. One of the few policies that can be said to harm virtually every group in a different way. Obviously, 
Whites and Asians lose out when you have preferential admission for black students or Hispanic students but blacks and Hispanics lose out because what typically happens is the students who have all the credentials to succeed in college are admitted to colleges where the standards are so much higher that they fail. In Intellectuals and Race, 2013, Sowell argues that intelligence quotient, IQ, gaps are hardly startling or unusual between, or within, ethnic groups. He notes that the roughly 15-point gap in contemporary black, White IQ scores is similar to that between the national average and the scores of certain ethnic white groups in years past, in periods when the nation was absorbing new immigrants. Late Talking and the Einstein Syndrome Sowell wrote The Einstein Syndrome, Bright Children Who Talk Late, a follow-up to his Late Talking Children, discussing a condition he termed the Einstein Syndrome. This book investigates the phenomenon of late-talking children, frequently misdiagnosed with autism or pervasive developmental disorder. He includes the research of Stephen Camarata and Steven Pinker, among others, in this overview of a poorly understood developmental trait. It is a trait which he says affected many historical figures who developed prominent careers, such as physicists Albert Einstein, Edward Teller, and Richard Feynman, mathematician Julia Robinson, and musicians Arthur Rubinstein and Clara Schumann. He makes the case for the theory that some children develop unevenly, asynchronous development, for a period in childhood due to rapid and extraordinary development in the analytical functions of the brain. This may temporarily rob resources from neighboring functions such as language development. As such, Sowell disagrees with Simon Baron Cohen's speculation that Einstein may have had Asperger syndrome. Politics In a town hall editorial, titled The Bush Legacy, Sowell assessed President George W. Bush as a mixed bag, but an honorable man. Sowell was strongly critical of Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump, and officially endorsed Ted Cruz in the 2016 Republican presidential primaries in a February article. However, he indicated that he would vote in the general election against Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton, due to fears about the appointments Clinton would possibly make to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump Two weeks before the 2016 election, Sowell urged voters to vote for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Sowell's belief was that Trump would be easier to impeach than the country's first female president. In 2018, when asked on his thoughts of Trump's presidency, Sowell replied I think he's better than the previous president. In March 2019, Sowell commented on the public's response to mainstream media's allegations that President Trump is a racist, what's tragic is that there's so many people out there who simply respond to words rather than ask themselves is what this person says true? How can I check it? And so on. A month later, Sowell again defended Trump against media charges of racism, stating, I've seen no hard evidence. And, unfortunately, we're living in a time where no one expects hard evidence. You just repeat some familiar words and people will react pretty much the way Pavlov's dog was conditioned to react to certain sounds. Reception Classical liberals, libertarians, and conservatives of different disciplines have received Sowell's work positively. Among these, he has been noted for originality, great depth and breadth, clarity of expression, and thoroughness of research. Sowell's publications have been received positively by economists Stephen Plot 61 and Abigail Thernstrom, political scientist Charles Murray, psychologist Steven Pinker, and Jonathan Haidt, Joseph Joff, publisher and editor of Dizite, Jay Nordlinger, senior editor of National Review, theater critic and political commentator Kevin D. Williamson, Walter E. Williams, professor of economics at George Mason University, publishing executive Steve Forbes, and R. Basjiat, economics editor of the now defunct web publication, Iconoclast.ca. Other academics such as Hampton University economist Bernadette Jacare, Harvard University sociologist William Julius Wilson, social scientist Richard Coughlin, and Stanford law professor Richard Thompson Ford have been critical of his work. Criticisms include lack of citations in some works as well as unclear self-citations, failure to explain a 70% difference between the earnings of whites and non-whites in one article, failure to take into account discrimination against women at work, poor methodology, and downplaying racism while caricaturing and then attacking liberal theories. Now, let's take an excerpt, from Mr. Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Preface. Race and rhetoric have gone together for so long that it is easy to forget that facts also matter and these facts often contradict many widely held beliefs. Fantasies and fallacies about racial and ethnic issues have had a particularly painful and deadly history, so exposing some of them is more than an academic exercise. The history of intergroup strife has been written in blood in many countries around the world and across centuries of human history. The purpose of this book is to expose some of the more blatant misconceptions poisoning race relations in our time. The reasons for these misconceptions range from simple, innocent ignorance to reasons that are far from simple and far from innocent. 
Many of the facts cited here may be surprising or even startling to some readers, but they are not literally unknown to scholars, they have simply not been widely discussed in the media or even in academia. Too much has been assumed for too long and too little has been scrutinized. It may be optimistic merely to suggest that racial or ethnic issues can be discussed rationally. Evidence to the contrary is all too abundant in the strident and sweeping condemnations directed against many who have tried to do so. Yet there is also evidence in recent years of a growing willingness to consider views that differ from the racial orthodoxy that has prevailed largely unchallenged from the 1960s onward in intellectual circles and in the popular media. In any event, these essays summarize the conclusions of more than a quarter of a century of my research on racial and cultural issues, as well as drawing on the work of innumerable other scholars around the world. These writings do not pretend to be definitive. If they provoke thoughts on a subject where clichés and dogmas too often prevail, then this book will have achieved one of its major goals. However, even a work seeking primarily to untangle a complex set of historic social issues can provoke the fashionable question but what is your solution? Yet there is not the slightest danger that there will be a shortage of solutions. On the contrary, an abundance of uninformed solutions has been one of our biggest social problems. Any serious consideration of social problems is likely to involve trade-offs rather than neat solutions, and trade-offs depend on values which can vary from one individual to the next. What trade-offs others might make after considering what these essays have to offer is not something that can be predicted, nor is such a prediction necessary. There is still much to be said for the ancient adage with all you're getting, get understanding. If this book can contribute to understanding on a subject where misunderstandings abound, then it will have done its work. Because this book is written for the general public, it does not feature long, convoluted sentences with escape clauses designed to prevent words from being twisted to mean something that they were never intended to mean. Common sense can be more readily expected when writing for the general public than when writing for the intelligentsia. To prevent the words in the essays that follow from being stretched, twisted, or given clever meanings, let me state here and now that these essays do not mean that, one, all southern whites were or are rednecks, that, two, all black Americans today or in the past were or are black rednecks, that, three, Jews are exactly the same as the other groups with whom they are compared, or that, for slavery is somehow morally acceptable because everyone was guilty of it. One cannot predict, much less forestall, all the clever misinterpretations that others might put on one's words. The most that can be done is to alert honest people to the problem. While this book is not particularly large in bulk, its scope is worldwide and it goes back through centuries. No one can write a book of such scope without incurring many debts to others. These include scholars who devoted much of their careers to the study of some particular specialty, such as the history of agriculture in the southern United States or the origins in Britain of various social groups in America. Such debts are too numerous to list here, quite aside from the danger of implicating other writers in conclusions which are my own. What must be acknowledged is my debt to the Hoover Institution, which has provided the conditions and the support which have facilitated my research and writing for more than two decades. For much of that time, my research assistant N.A. Lu has been an indispensable part of my work and, for this particular book, she has been very ably assisted by the dedicated work of Elizabeth Costa. In the end, however, I must and will take full responsibility for the conclusions reached in the essays that follow. Hoover Institution Stanford University Black Rednecks and White Liberals These people are creating a terrible problem in our cities. They can't or won't hold a job, they flout the law constantly and neglect their children, they drink too much and their moral standards would shame an alley cat. For some reason or other, they absolutely refuse to accommodate themselves to any kind of decent, civilized life. This was said in 1956 in Indianapolis, not about blacks or other minorities, but about poor whites from the South. Nor was Indianapolis unique in this respect. A 1951 survey in Detroit found that white Southerners living there were considered undesirable by 21% of those surveyed, compared to 13% who ranked blacks the same way. In the late 1940s, a Chicago employer said frankly I told the guard at the plant gate to tell the hillbillies that there were no openings. When poor whites from the south moved into northern cities to work in war plants during the Second World War occasionally a white southerner would find that a flat or furnished room had just been rented when the landlord heard his southern accent. More is involved here than a mere parallel between blacks and southern whites. What is involved is a common subculture that goes back for centuries, which has encompassed everything from ways of talking to attitudes toward education, violence, and sex and which originated not in the South, but in those parts of the British Isles from which white Southerners came. That culture long ago died out where it originated in Britain, while surviving in the American South. Then it largely died out among both white and black Southerners, while still surviving today in the poorest and worst of the urban black ghettos. It is not uncommon for a culture to survive longer where it is transplanted and to retain characteristics lost in its place of origin. 
The French spoken in Quebec and the Spanish spoken in Mexico contain words and phrases that have long since become archaic in France and Spain. Regional German dialects persisted among Germans living in the United States after those dialects had begun to die out in Germany itself. Point superscript 3A scholar specializing in the history of the South has likewise noted among white Southerners archaic word forms, while another scholar has pointed out the continued use in that region of terms that were familiar at the time of the first Queen Elizabeth. Point 5 The card game whist is today played almost exclusively by blacks, especially low-income blacks, though. In the 18th century it was played by the British upper classes, and has since then evolved into bridge. The history of the evolution of this game is indicative of a much broader pattern of cultural evolution in much more weighty things. Southern whites not only spoke the English language in very different ways from whites in other regions, their churches, their roads, their homes, their music, their education, their food, and their sex lives were all sharply different from those of other whites. The history of this redneck or cracker culture is more than a curiosity. It has contemporary significance because of its influence on the economic and social evolution of vast numbers of people millions of blacks and whites and its continuing influence on the lives and deaths of a residual population in America's black ghettos which has still not completely escaped from that culture. From early in American history, foreign visitors and domestic travelers alike were struck by cultural contrasts between the white population of the South and that of the rest of the country in general and of New England in particular. In the early 19th century Alexis de Tocqueville contrasted white Southerners with white Northerners in his classic Democracy in America and Frederick Law Olmsted did the same later in his books about his travels through the antebellum South, notably Cotton Kingdom. De Tocqueville set a pattern when he concluded that almost all the differences which may be noticed between the Americans in the Southern and in the Northern states have originated in slavery. Point six Olmsted likewise attributed the differences between white Southerners and white Northerners to the existence of slavery in the South. So did widely read antebellum Southern writer Hinton Helper, who declared that slavery, and nothing but slavery, has retarded the progress and prosperity of our portion of the Union. Just as they explained regional differences between whites by slavery, so many others in a later era would explain differences between blacks and whites nationwide by slavery. Plausible as these explanations might seem in both cases, they will not stand up under a closer scrutiny of history. It is perhaps understandable that the great, overwhelming moral curse of slavery has presented a tempting causal explanation of the peculiar subculture of southern whites, as well as that of blacks. Yet the same subculture had existed among southern whites and their ancestors in those parts of the British Isles from which they came, long before they had ever seen a black slave. The nature of the subculture, among people who were called rednecks and crackers in Britain before they ever saw America, needs to be explored before turning to the question of its current status among ghetto blacks and how developments in the larger society have affected its evolution. Redneck culture. Emigration from Britain, like other migrations around the world, was not random in either its origins or its destinations. Most of the Britons who migrated to colonial Massachusetts, for example, came from within a 60-mile radius of the town of Haverhill in East Anglia. The Virginia aristocracy came from different localities in southern and western England. Most of the common white people of the south came from the northern borderlands of England for centuries a no-man's land between Scotland and England as well as from the Scottish Highlands and from Ulster County, Ireland. All these fringe areas were turbulent, if not lawless, regions, where none of the contending forces was able to establish full control and create a stable order. Whether called a Celtic fringe or North Britons, these were people from outside the cultural heartland of England, as their behavior on both sides of the Atlantic showed. Before the era of modern transportation and communication, sharp regional differences were both common and persistent. In some of the counties of colonial Virginia, from nearly three-quarters to four-fifths of the people came from northern Britain and similar proportions were found in some of the counties of Kentucky and Tennessee, as well as in parts of both the Carolinas. Although they predominated in many parts of the South, such people also had some northern enclaves in colonial America, notably western Pennsylvania, where Ulster Scott settled. What is at least equally important as where particular people settled is when they emigrated from the borderlands, Ulster, and the Scottish Highlands. Scotland in particular progressed enormously in the 18th century. The level from which it began may be indicated by the fact that a visitor to late 18th century Edinburgh found it noteworthy that its residents no longer threw sewage from their chamber pots out their windows into the street, something that passersby had long had to be alert for, to avoid being splattered. Point superscript one degree such crude and unsanitary living had long been characteristic of earlier times, when rural Scots lived in the same primitive shelters with their animals and vermin abounded. Point superscript 1 superscript 1 A similar lack of concern with cleanliness was found among others in the borderlands of Britain and among their descendants on the other side of the Atlantic in the antebellum south. For example, a 19th century politician built up a political machine in the poor white districts of Mississippi by such practices as this. He did not resort to any conventional tactics of kissing dirty babies, 
but he pleased mothers and fathers in log cabins by taking their children upon his lap and searching for red bugs, lice, and other vermin. Back in the British Isles, the life of the Scottish people was transformed dramatically, from the masses to the elites, as they advanced from being one of the least educated to one of the most educated peoples in Europe. However, what is significant here is that much of the migration to the American South occurred before these sweeping social transformations. This timing was crucial, as Professor Grady McWhiney has pointed out in his book Cracker Culture. Had the South been peopled by 19th century Scots, Welshmen, and Ulstermen, the course of Southern history would doubtless have been radically different. 19th century Scottish and Scotch-Irish immigrants did in fact fit quite comfortably into Northern American society. Significantly the Irish, who retained their Celtic ways, did not. But only a trickle of the flood of 19th century immigrants came into the South, the ancestors of the vast majority of Southerners arrived in America before the Anglicization of Scotland, Wales, and Ulster had advanced very far. In earlier centuries, Scotland was a poor and backward country, like Wales and Ireland and like the turbulent northern borderlands of England, where the Scots and the English fought wars and committed atrocities against each other for centuries. Local feuding clans and freebooting marauders kept this region in an uproar, even when there were no military hostilities between the English and Scottish kingdoms. Ulster County had a different kind of turbulence, as the English and Scottish settlers there encountered the hostility and terrorist activities of the conquered, dispossessed, and embittered indigenous Irish population. These were the parts of Britain from which most people migrated to the American South, before the political and cultural unification of the British Isles or the standardization of the English language. The rednecks of these regions were what one social historian has called some of the most disorderly inhabitants of a deeply disordered land. In this world of impotent laws, daily dangers, and lives that could be snuffed out at any moment, the snatching at whatever fleeting pleasures presented themselves was at least understandable. Certainly prudence and long-range planning of one's life had no such payoff in this chaotic world as in more settled and orderly societies under the protection of effective laws. Books, businesses, technology, and science were not the kinds of things likely to be promoted or admired in the world of the rednecks and crackers. Manliness and the forceful projection of that manliness to others and advertising of one's willingness to fight and even to put one's life on the line were at least plausible means of gaining whatever measure of security was possible in a lawless region and a violent time. The kinds of attitudes and cultural values produced by centuries of living under such conditions did not disappear very quickly, even when social evolution in North America slowly and almost imperceptibly created a new and different world with different objective prospects. What the rednecks or crackers brought with them across the ocean was a whole constellation of attitudes, values, and behavior patterns that might have made sense in the world in which they had lived for centuries, but which would prove to be counterproductive in the world to which they were going and counterproductive to the blacks who would live in their midst for centuries before emerging into freedom and migrating to the great urban centers of the United States, taking with them similar values. The cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included an aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education, sexual promiscuity, improvidence, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music, and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. This oratorical style carried over into the political oratory of the region in both the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights era, and has continued on into our own times among black politicians, preachers, and activists. Touchy pride, vanity, and boastful self-dramatization were also part of this redneck culture among people from regions of Britain where the civilization was the least developed. They boast and lack self-restraint, Olmsted said, after observing their descendants in the American antebellum South. While Professor Grady McQuiney's cracker culture is perhaps the most thorough historical study of the values and behavioral patterns of white Southerners, many other scholarly studies have turned up very similar patterns, even when they differed in some ways as to the causes. Professor David Hackett Fisher's Albion's Seed for example, challenges the Celtic connection thesis put forth by Professor McWhiney, but shows many of the same cultural patterns among the same people, both in Britain and in the American South. Popular writings of the 19th and 20th centuries have likewise described similar behavior, including the Indianapolis residents' comments on white southern migrants to that city, which sounds so much like what many have said about ghetto blacks. None of this is meant to claim that these patterns have remained rigidly unchanged over the centuries or that there are literally no differences between whites and blacks in any aspects of this subculture. However, what is remarkable is how pervasive and how close the similarities have been. Pride and Violence Centuries before black pride became a fashionable phrase, there was cracker pride and it was very much the same kind of pride. It was not pride in any particular achievement or set of behavioral standards or moral principles adhered to. It was instead a touchiness about anything that might be even remotely construed as a personal slight, much less an insult, 
combined with a willingness to erupt into violence over it. New Englanders were baffled about this kind of pride among crackers. Observing such people, the Yankees could not understand what they had to feel proud about. However, this kind of pride is perhaps best illustrated by an episode reported in Professor McQuiney's Cracker Culture. When an Englishman, tired of waiting for a southerner to start working on a house he had contracted to build, hired another man to do the job, the enraged southerner, who considered himself dishonored, vowed tomorrow morn, I will come with men, and twenty rifles, and I will have your life, or you shall have mine. Point superscript three degree. In the vernacular of our later times, he had been dissed and he was not going to stand for it, regardless of the consequences for himself or others. The history of the antebellum South is full of episodes showing the same pattern, whether expressed in the highly formalized duels of the aristocracy or in the no-holds-barred style of fighting called rough and tumble among the common folk, a style that included biting off ears and gouging out eyes. It was not simply that particular isolated individuals did such things, social approval was given to these practices, as illustrated by this episode in the antebellum South. A crowd gathered and arranged itself in an impromptu ring. The contestants were asked if they wished to fight fair or rough and tumble. When they chose rough and tumble, a roar of approval rose from the multitude. This particular fight ended with the loser's nose bitten off, his ears torn off, and both his eyes gouged out, after which the victor, himself maimed and bleeding, was cheered round the grounds, to the cheers of the crowd. This rough and tumble style of fighting was also popular in the southern highlands of Scotland where grabbing an opponent's testicles and attempting to castrate him by hand was also an accepted practice. Point superscript 3 superscript 1 Scottish Highlanders were, in centuries past, part of the Celtic. Fringe or North Britons, outside the orbit of English culture, not only as it existed in England but also in the Scottish Lowlands. The Highlanders lagged far behind the Lowlanders in education and economic progress, as well as in the speaking of the English language, for Gaelic was still widely spoken by Highlanders in the 19th century, not only in Scotland itself but also in North Carolina and in Australia, where immigrants from the Scottish Highlands were unable to communicate with English-speaking people, including lowland Scots who had also immigrated. In the Hebrides Islands off Scotland, Gaelic had still not completely died out in the middle of the 20th century. Point superscript 3 superscript 2. What is important in the pride and violence patterns among rednecks and crackers was not that particular people did particular things at particular times and places. Nor is it necessary to attempt to quantify such behavior. What is crucial is that violence growing out of such pride had social approval. As Professor McWhiney pointed out, men often killed and went free in the South just as in earlier times they had in Ireland and Scotland. As one observer in the South noted, enemies would meet, exchange insults, and one would shoot the other down, professing that he had acted in self-defense because he believed the victim was armed. When such a story was told in court in a community where it is not a strange thing for men to carry about their person's deadly weapons, each member of the jury feels that he would have done the same thing under similar circumstances so that in condemning him they would but condemn themselves. The actions of southern courts often amazed outsiders, Professor McWhiney said. But what may be even more revealing of widespread attitudes were the cases that never even went to trial. As another study of white southerners put it. To many rural southerners, rather than a set of legal statutes, justice remained a matter of societal norms allowing for respect of property rights, individual honor, and a maximum of personal independence. Any violation of this pattern amounted to a breach of justice requiring a specific response from the injured party. Upon learning that a youthful neighbor had approached his wife in an overly friendly manner, Robert Leard of Tangipahoa, Louisiana, promptly tracked the young man down and killed him. Under the Piney Woods Code of Justice, anything less would have invited shame and ridicule upon the Leard family. Intensity of personal pride was connected by Olmsted with the fiend-like street fights of the South. He mentioned an episode of public murder with impunity. A gentleman of veracity, now living in the South, told me that among his friends he had once numbered two young men, who were themselves intimate friends, till one of them, taking offense at some foolish words uttered by the other, challenges him. A large crowd assembled to see the duel, which took place on a piece of prairie ground. The combatants came armed with rifles, and at the first interchange of shots, the challenged man fell disabled by a ball in the thigh. The other, throwing down his rifle, walked toward him, and kneeling by his side, drew a bowie knife, and deliberately butchered him. The crowd of bystanders not only permitted this, but the execrable assassin still lives in the community, has since married, and, as far as my informant could judge, his social position has been rather advanced than otherwise, from thus dealing with his enemy. Point superscript 36. Again, what is important here is not the isolated incident itself but the set of social attitudes which allowed such incidents to take place publicly with impunity, the killer knowing in advance that what he was doing had community approval. Moreover, such attitudes went back for centuries, on both sides of the Atlantic, 
at least among the particular people concerned. During the era when dueling became a pattern among upper-class Americans between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War it was particularly prevalent in the South. As a social history of the United States noted of southern statesmen who rose to prominence after 1790, hardly one can be mentioned who was not involved in a duel. Point superscript three seven editors of southern newspapers became involved in duels so often that cartoonists depicted them with a pen in one hand and a dueling pistol in the other. Point superscript three eight most duels arose not over substantive issues but over words considered insulting. Superscript 3. At lower social levels, southern feuds such as that between the Hatfields and the McCoys which began in a dispute over a pig and ultimately claimed more than 20 lives became legendary. It has been estimated that, while at least three-quarters of the settlers in colonial New England originated in the lowland southeastern half of Britain, a similarly large proportion of the population of the south originated in the Scottish Highlands, Ireland, Wales, or the northern and western uplands of England. Point four superscript 1. Those arriving from Ireland in colonial times would have been from Ulster County, where Scots and Englishmen settled, since substantial immigration of the indigenous Irish did not begin until near the middle of the 19th century. Radically different cultures could develop and persist during this era before transportation and communication developed to the point of promoting widespread interactions among people in different regions. In colonial America, the people of the English borderlands and of the Celtic fringe were seen by contemporaries as culturally quite distinct, and were socially unwelcome. Mob action prevented a shipload of Ulster Scots from landing in Boston in 1719 and the Quaker leaders of eastern Pennsylvania encouraged Ulster Scots to settle out in western Pennsylvania for superscript 3 where they acted as a buffer to the Indians, as well as being a constant source of friction and conflict with the Indians. It was not just in the north that crackers and rednecks were considered to be undesirables. Southern plantation owners with poor whites living on adjoining land would often offer to buy their land for more than it was worth, in order to be rid of such neighbors. Because there were no racial differences to form separate statistical categories for these North Britons and for other whites who settled in the South or in particular enclaves elsewhere, indirect indicators must serve as proxies for these cultural differences. Names are among these indicators. Edward, for example, was a popular name in Virginia and in Wessex, England, from which many Virginians had emigrated but the first 40 classes of undergraduates at Harvard College contained only one man named Edward. It would be nearly two centuries before Harvard enrolled anyone named Patrick, even though that was a common name in western Pennsylvania, where the Ulster Scots settled. This says something not only about the social and geographic differences of the times, but also about how regionalized the naming patterns were then, in contrast to the fact that no one today finds it particularly strange when an Asian American has such non-Asian first names as Kevin or Michelle. Even where there was no conflict or hostility involved, Southerners often showed a reckless disregard for human life, including their own. For example, the racing of steamboats that happened to encounter each other on the rivers of the South often ended with exploding boilers, especially when the excited competition led to the tying down of safety valves, in order to build up more pressure to generate more speed. Point 46 An impromptu race between steamboats that encountered each other on the Mississippi illustrates the pattern. On board one boat was an old lady, who, having bought a winter stock of bacon, pork, and sea, was returning to her home on the banks of the Mississippi. Fun lovers on board both boats insisted upon a race, cheers and drawn pistols obliged the captains to cooperate. As the boats struggled to outdistance each other, excited passengers demanded more speed. Despite every effort, the boats raced evenly until the old lady directed her slaves to throw all her casks of bacon into the boilers. Her boat then moved ahead of the other vessel, which suddenly exploded, clouds of splinters and human limbs darkened the sky. On the undamaged boat passengers shouted their victory. But above their cheers could be heard the shrill voice of the old lady, crying, I did it, I did it it's all my bacon. 47. On the Mississippi and other western rivers of the United States as it existed in the early 19th century, it has been estimated that 30% of all the steamboats were lost in accidents. Part of this may have been due to deficiencies in the early steamboats themselves but much of it was due to the recklessness with which they were operated on southern rivers. The comments of a fireman on a Mississippi steamboat of that era may suggest why a river voyage was considered more dangerous than crossing the Atlantic at a time when sinkings in the Atlantic were by no means rare. Talk about northern steamers, the fireman of a Mississippi steamboat sneered to an eastern traveler in 1844 it don't need no spunk to navigate them waters. You ain't bust a biler in five years. But I tell you, stranger, it takes a man to ride one of these half-alligator boats, head on a snag, high pressures, valve soldered down, 600 souls on board and in danger of going to the devil 48. This was not mere idle talk. Among the steamboat explosions in the south, one on the Mississippi in 1838 killed well over a hundred people, and another near Baton Rouge in 1859 killed more than half of the 400 people on board and badly injured more than half the survivors.
Southerners were just as reckless on land, whether in escapades undertaken for the excitement of the moment or in the many fights and deaths resulting from some insult or slight among people touchy about their honor and dignity. Again, all of this went back to a way of life in the turbulent regions of Britain from which white Southerners came. Point five superscript 1 Nor is it hard to recognize in these attitudes clear parallels to the behavior and attitudes of ghetto gangs today, who kill over a look or a word, or any action that can be construed as dissing them. Pride had yet another side to it. Among the definitions of a cracker in the Oxford Dictionary is a braggart one who talks trash in today's vernacular a wisecracker. More than mere wisecracks were involved, however. The pattern is one said by Professor McWhiney to go back to descriptions of ancient Celts as boasters and threateners, and given to bombastic self-dramatization. Examples today come readily to mind, not only from ghetto life and gangster rap, but also from militant black leaders, spokesmen, or activists. What is painfully ironic is that such attitudes and behavior are projected today as aspects of a distinctive black identity, when in fact they are part of a centuries-old pattern among the whites in whose midst generations of blacks lived in the South. Any broad-brush discussion of cultural patterns must, of course, not claim that all people whether white or black had the same culture, much less to the same degree. There are not only changes over time, there are cross-currents at a given time. Nevertheless, it is useful to see the outlines of a general pattern, even when that pattern erodes over time and at varying rates among different subgroups. The violence for which white southerners became most lastingly notorious was lynching. Like other aspects of the redneck and cracker culture, it has often been attributed to race or slavery. In fact, however, most lynching victims in the antebellum South were white. Economic considerations alone would prevent a slave owner from lynching his own slave or tolerating anyone else's doing so. It was only after the Civil War that the emancipated blacks became the principal targets of lynching. But, by then, Southern vigilante violence had been a tradition for more than a century in North America 55 and even longer back in the regions of Britain from which crackers and rednecks came, where retributive justice was often left in private hands. Even the burning cross of the Ku Klux Klan has been traced back to the fiery cross of old Scotland used by feuding clans. Economic Activity Observers of the white population of the antebellum south often commented not only on their poverty but also on their lack of industriousness or entrepreneurship. A contemporary characterized many white southerners as too poor to keep slaves and too proud to work. A landmark history of agriculture in the antebellum south described the poor whites this way. They cultivated in a casual and careless fashion small patches of corn or rice, sweet potatoes, cowpeas, and garden products. Women and children did a large part of the work. The men spent their time principally in hunting or idleness, the men were inveterate drunkards and sometimes the women joined them in drinking inferior whiskey. Licentiousness was prevalent among them. Among their equals, the men were quarrelsome and inclined to crimes of violence, the poor whites were densely ignorant. Their labors tended to be intermittent often when they were pressed for money, rather than a steady employment career. Point six degree Frederick Law Olmsted called it lazy poverty, with whatever work they did being done in a thoughtless manner. Point six superscript 1 summarizing his observations in the antebellum south, Olmsted said. I know that while men seldom want an abundance of coarse food in the cotton states, the proportion of the free white men who live as well in any aspect as our working classes in the north, on an average, is small, and that the citizens of the cotton states, as a whole, are poor. They work little, and that little, badly, they earn little, they sell little, they buy little, and they have little very little of the common comforts and consolations of civilized life. Their destitution is not material only, it is intellectual and it is moral. When Olmsted found work done efficiently, promptly, and well during his travels through the South when he found well-run businesses, good libraries, impressive churches, and efficiently functioning institutions in general he almost invariably found them to be run by Northerners, foreigners, or Jews. Nor was he the only visiting observer to reach such conclusions. Another observed that nearly all of the Old South's successful storekeepers were either Yankees or Yankee-trained Southerners. A French visitor said that, when you saw a plantation in better condition than others, you would often discover that it was owned by someone from the North. A history of Southern agriculture presented this picture of North Carolina in the early 18th century. Many of the inhabitants were rough borderers who lived a crude, half-savage existence. Some were herdsmen, dependent mainly on the product of the range and under the necessity of eating meat without bread. There were also many thriftless and lazy families who had been attracted to the country by the mild climate and the ease with which a bare livelihood could be obtained by hunting and fishing, raising a little corn, and keeping a few head of swine and possibly a cow or two on the range. On the other hand, there were small farmers, many of northern or European extraction, living industrious and thrifty lives amidst a rude abundance and considerable diversity of food supplies. They maintained good-sized herds of cattle, swine, and sheep, and the women made butter and cheese. 
Borderers at that point would refer to people from the borderlands of Britain, those included in what Professor McWhiney and others have called the Celtic Fringe and what Professor Fisher called North Britons. While the making of butter and cheese might seem to be an unremarkable activity in most rural communities, butter and cheese making by these farmers of non-southerner origins was in fact exceptional in the South. One of Frederick Law Olmsted's complaints during his travels through the antebellum South was the scarcity of butter, despite all the cows he saw. Even among plantation owners, he said, as for butter, some have heard of it, some have seen it, but few have eaten it. Point sixty-seven. Hard data support his conclusions about the scarcity of butter in the antebellum South, despite an abundance of cows. In 1860, the South had 40% of all the dairy cows in the country but produced just 20% of the butter and only 1% of the cheese. As a study of antebellum southern agriculture noted, attempts to stimulate greater attention to commercial production were futile and even the bluegrass regions imported a large proportion of the cheese consumed. The study concluded. In short, while the South abounded in cattle, the reported production of dairy products was very small. A table based on census statistics shows that some of the southern states, such as Texas and Florida, had far more cattle per capita than important dairy states like Vermont and New York, and in most of the southern states cattle per capita were nearly or quite. And lastly, let's take a look at black conservatism in the United States. Black conservatism in the United States is a political and social movement rooted in communities of African descent that aligns largely with the American conservative movement. Black conservatism emphasizes traditionalism, patriotism, capitalism, free markets, and sometimes social conservatism. Black conservatives are supported by a minority of black Americans, whereas the majority of black Americans favor the left of the political spectrum. Booker T. Washington Beliefs one of the main characteristics of black conservatism is its emphasis on personal choice and responsibilities above socioeconomic status and institutional racism. In the tradition of African-American politics and intellectual life, black conservatives tend to side with Booker T. Washington as contrasted with W.E.B. Du Bois. For many black conservatives, the key mission is to bring repair and success to the black community by applying the following fundamental principles. The pursuit of educational and professional excellence as a means of advancement within the society. Policies that promote safety and security in the community beyond the typical casting of a criminal as a victim of societal racism. Not using the lens of race and the country's history of discrimination as justifications for not excelling to the best of your abilities. Local economic development through free enterprise rather than looking to the federal government for assistance. Empowerment of the individual via self-improvement, virtue, conscience, and supernatural grace. Black conservatives typically oppose affirmative action, which is supported by the vast majority of African-American communities. They tend to argue that efforts to obtain reparations for slavery are either misguided or counterproductive. Black conservatives tend to be self-critical of aspects of African-American culture that they believe have created poverty and dependency. Moreover, black conservatives, especially black Republicans, are often accused of being Uncle Tom's. Ebony in their May 2001 100 plus most influential black Americans issue, did not include a number of influential African Americans such as Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, Armstrong Williams, Walter Williams and, most notably, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. The Economist described the exclusion of Justice Thomas from the list as spiteful. Black conservatives favor integration of African Americans into mainstream America and, consequently, disagree with black nationalism and separatism. Black conservatives are more inclined to support economic policies promoting globalization, free trade, and tax cuts. According to a 2004 study, 13.7% of blacks identified as conservative or extremely conservative with another 14.4% identifying as slightly conservative. However, the same study indicated that less than 10% identified as Republican or Republican-leaning. Likewise, a 2007 Pew Research Center survey showed that 19% of blacks identified as religious right. In 2004, the Pew Research Center indicated only 7% of blacks identified as Republican. A national election pool poll showed that support for California Proposition 8, 2008, a state constitutional amendment defining marriage as an opposite-sex union, was strong among African-American voters, 70% of those interviewed in the exit poll a higher percentage than any other racial group stated that they voted in favor of Proposition 8. Polls by both the Associated Press and CNN mirrored this data, reporting support among black voters to be at 70% and 75%, respectively. African-American support was considered crucial to the proposition's passage because African-Americans made up an unusually large percentage of voters in 2008, the presence of African-American presidential candidate Barack Obama on the ballot was believed to have increased African-American voter turnout. Historical Basis From Reconstruction up until the New Deal, 
the black population tended to vote Republican. During that period, the Republican Party particularly in the southern United States was seen as more racially liberal than the Democratic Party, primarily because of the role of the southern wing of the Democratic Party as the party of racial segregation and the Republican Party's roots in the abolitionist movement, see Dixie Kratz. Blacks started to shift in significant numbers to the Democrats with the election of Franklin D. Roosevelt and continued with the election of John F. Kennedy. This shift was also influenced by Herbert Hoover's practice of firing loyal African Americans from positions within the Republican Party, in order to increase his appeal to Southern white voters. This can be considered an early example of a set of Republican Party methods that were later termed the Southern Strategy. <laughs> what y'all think about that? Mr. Thomas Sowell, I'ma tell y'all, I highly respect this gentleman. I highly do. You know, there's a lot of things in life, you know, we go through and like I say, you know, we just parrot what other folks say and, you know, it's particularly like when you go back, when I think about back in school, when I learned a lot about, you know, black history in school or just history in school in general, because I didn't have black history class, of course, until I got to high school. But growing up, you know, down in, in Louisiana and then when I went on up to elementary and junior high school, the only thing we had was American history. So that's all you know. And then when you get into black history, you know, you really don't get off into some of the things that Thomas Sowell get off into. But it's like everything else, you know, history is told, you know, by the winner. History is always his story. That's why it's called history. It's his story. But when I found Mr. Thomas Sowell and I got off in the, into this thing, it gave me a good understanding of a whole lot of things. And if y'all get this book here, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, y'all going to learn a whole lot. You're going to learn a whole lot, you know, about race in this country. Because everybody that came to this country besides them Indians came from a different race. And it also gave me a good understanding and appreciation, knowledge-wise, why, like in the South, you know, you have people, you see people in South talk country, and people in the North, you know, they talked all, you know, dignified and everything. You know, like the uh, folks in the North used to call me when I was a little kid, you know, country bunking by the way that I talked. And now I understand that the way that black folks talked in the South, per se, countryfied, you know, we got that from the slave masters. Because you got to understand when slaves came over here, they didn't understand nothing about no English. They didn't speak no English. So you emulate those who you around. So that's how you have Southern, Southern folks talking one way and you got other folks talking the other way because of the folks that you emulate that you around. And in the South, like Thomas told y'all, you know, that led, you know, the cracker language, this countrified language that the blacks in the South taught, I mean, taught, you know, they got that from their slave masters. They got that from the people that was around them. So like I say, it was very enlightening for me, you know, listening to this uh, audio book, uh, digging down deep, you know, into some of the history. And I never expected this when I picked up this book, but I'm going to highly, re re uh, I highly, uh, I highly uh, ask, you, ask you folks out there, if you want some good reading, get the audio book. Man, you can get on the highway or something, man, put this audio book on and you're really going to learn. And it's just not about black folks. I don't think it's a black history book. No, it's not that at all. And that's what struck me when I first, you know, uh, pick up the book. I thought it was like a, a black history book. No, it covers all races, you know, from blacks to the Irish to everybody. He goes really in deep. And that's why I like about Mr. Soul. He does his research. These are the type of people that I like to listen to. And another thing I liked about him was he don't mind changing his views, like the views he had on Marxism. But then when he got into the government and seen the inner workings of it, he seen how it worked, he changed his views. And that's one thing that politicians, you know, they need to learn how to do. They need to learn how to change their views on good information, like this little COVID thing we're going through. This good COVID thing going through, we're not listening to the scientists, you know, the people who actually are doing the work. We're going by what we uh, politicians do is they test the pulse of the community or if they have the agenda, that's what they go by. But like I said, I'm not going to get off into that. I just wanted to bring y'all this little thing here on Mr. Thomas Sowell. Now, what I'm going to call this one right here, I'm going to call this one part one because I'm going to come back with part two with this interview from the Hoover Institute with Mr. Thomas Sowell to let, let, you know, let you guys hear from the man himself. It's a great interview. The interview is probably about an hour long. And so, like I said, I'm going to bring that to you guys in, in part two. So I'm going to do this in part one and part two on Mr. Thomas Sowell. I highly respect this gentleman. 
So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to cut this thing off here and uh, I'm going to kick back and I'm going to start preparing part two. And this is a live, a real interview with Mr. Thomas. So, man, I really, really respect this guy. And it's also for me uh, doing this, uh, presenting this little interview here on my little part talk. You know, it's uh, I'm going to have it forever. Hopefully it's going to be embedded. You know, and remove the illusion pod top podcast archive. You know, this little interview with Mr. Thomas Sowell. So I can go back and I can listen to a, a great man, a great thinker. And it's just a shame that, you know, when Obama was in office, you know, he didn't he didn't refer to a gentleman like this. You know, he didn't go and talk to a man that has experience and knowledge. And not just Obama, but a lot of these politicians is it's the same way because these politicians got agendas. And you, you think there's not an agenda going on right now, then you're just not informed. But look at it. I'm going to end this little pod talk now. And I'm going to tell y'all, I really did enjoy this Illusion Uma Diamora. If you get to your little local cigar spot, man, pick up this stick. Your show going to enjoy it. I really, really. And this is a full body. And the amazing thing about this stick here being a full body, I didn't have some full bodies that had knocked me to my knees. Had, had knocked me down and had me. I had to I had to go to sleep. I couldn't eat enough candy, put a little sugar in my body to balance me back out. Man, but this thing here, this was a nice, smooth, enjoyable full body stick. So y'all pick it up if you ever get a chance. Illusion, Uma, Diamora. And look here, like I tell y'all in closing all the time out there, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.